So good to be with you this morning. Welcome to those of you who are joining us online. Always appreciate you being with us. And a very special welcome to those of you who may be joining us for the very first time. We are currently involved in a sermon series entitled Out of the Ashes, based on the book of Nehemiah. And today we arrive at Nehemiah chapter 3. This chapter has been referred to by more than a few as one of the most boring chapters in the entire Bible. And it's easy to see why, because it seems like a long list of really hard-to-pronounce names. Now, aren't you thankful you got up early on a Sunday morning to come sit in a very cold auditorium to listen to a roll call of ancient names? Good, good. Thank you. I'm glad. Some of you don't share that spirit, and you're going to be quick to get on your Facebook or Instagram or do something like that, but I want to ask you to hang with me. Hang with me, because... I believe we can pull some things out of this particular chapter that are helpful for us today. Now first, I want to bring up to speed those who may be joining us for the first time. The first time we meet Nehemiah, he's living in Susa, a Persian city. Now Nehemiah himself is not Persian, he is a Jew, but he's done pretty well for himself in this foreign land. In fact, he's currently serving as cupbearer to the king, which allows him to live a pretty comfortable lifestyle so long as no one chooses to try to poison the king. Now, see, he was the guy who had to take the first sip of the king's wine. As long as it wasn't poison, he's doing all right. Life is golden. He's living the good life. But there comes a day when he makes the decision, I'm going to leave this good life at least for a period of time. Because I, I'm going to go do something to help some other people. I want to go help my fellow countrymen who are living some 900 miles away in the city of Jerusalem. Now, why did those people need help? Well, their city, Jerusalem, the city of God, was a wreck. The protective wall around the city, it was in ruins. The gates had been burned down. This city needed a rebuild. And Nehemiah believed himself to be the person to lead that effort. And so he makes a costly decision. I'm going to give up the good life that I'm enjoying right now, working in the royal court. And I'm going to go serve these people that I've never met before in my life in this city that I've never been to before in my life. Why would he make that type of decision? Well, obviously, he's deeply concerned about his Jewish brothers and sisters, as it stood, that city was an easy target for hostile nations. But was this his primary reason for getting involved? I don't believe so based upon what Nehemiah says to the people after surveying their situation. These are words we read last week, Nehemiah chapter 2 and verse 17. Then I said to them, you see the trouble we are in. Jerusalem lies in ruins, and its gates have been burned with fire. Come, let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem, and we will no longer be in disgrace. Jerusalem had been, become the punchline for every late-night talk show host within a 500-mile radius. How many Jews does it take to build a wall? Who knows? They haven't built one in years. And everybody would laugh, and that's the way it would go. And it wasn't only the people of Jerusalem who were being mocked. It was their God, Yahweh, he was being mocked as well. 
Hey, if this God of Israel is so mighty, then why is the city in which he is said to dwell in absolute shambles? Why does he do something about it? What a joke that guy turned out to be. And that broke Nehemiah's heart. That's the last thing that he wanted to see. You see, his desire for people far and wide was to stand in awe of and praise the one true living God, the God of Israel. It was for God's name and for God's fame that Nehemiah was determined to bring Jerusalem back from the ashes. And guess what? He made it happen. In fact, he made it happen in record time. The entire wall of Jerusalem was rebuilt in 52 days. It's hard to get all your building permits done in 52 days, let alone finish an entire building project. Now, how did Nehemiah make this happen? Well, first and foremost, God was with him. It was God who was working behind the scenes to bring about this success. And time and time again throughout this story, Nehemiah is going to make that point. It's really not about me. It's about what God's doing to make this happen. But Nehemiah also wants us to know that this success was made possible because of some other people. And so Nehemiah chapter 3, he names 38 specific people by name and 42 different people groups that played a role in the rebuilding of the wall of Jerusalem and the gates. Now, while this can make for a snoozer of a read, I believe there are some insights for us to gain today. And I'm going to mention these insights and highlight them, and I want to apply them specifically to the church. But even if you're not that interested in the church per se, I believe there's some good stuff for you as you think about the different groups you're a part of and helping them thrive. So you can take these principles by and large, and you can apply them to your family, and you can apply them to your work situation, you can apply them to a team that you might be on, is you think about, what do I do to help these environments thrive? But here's the reason I want to apply them to the church specifically. In a live, vibrant, impactful church brings glory to God, but a church that's in a shambles is a disgrace. You see, when the church limps along, when it functions more like a landmark rather than a lighthouse, when it has to close its doors, which is happening at a thousand churches plus a year, then Satan chuckles and outsiders point to the church's failure as, the full, as evidence of the foolishness of faith and the ineptness of God. And we must do everything that we possibly can to make sure that doesn't happen. So what insights can we gain from this text that will help us, the church, the dwelling place of God, thrive. Well, the first thing that we see is that Nehemiah's vision for the city of Jerusalem became a reality because many, many people decided to get involved. As great as the leader of Nehemiah was, and he was a fantastic leader, the Jerusalem wall, it would still be in ruins if it was up to Nehemiah to do all of the work himself. And the reason that wall was rebuilt in 52 days, besides God being at work behind the scenes, was also because a lot of different people from different backgrounds and professions, localities, they decided we're going to chip in, we're going to do our part as well. 
And it didn't matter if they were people of status like Shalom who ruled over a district. He's mentioned in verse, uh, verse 15, I believe it is. Or if they were people of no status, like the unnamed temple servants who are mentioned, who lived on the hill of Ophel, who are mentioned in verse 26. People just got involved. And when I say they got involved, here's what I really mean. They made the decision to get their hands dirty. They, they didn't just write a check so that Nehemiah could hire some skilled laborers. In fact, not once in this text will you mention or will you read a, a mention of craftsmen or, or laborers or carpenters or stonemasons or anything of the like. Instead, what you read about are people like Elishib, verse 1, who is a high priest, and Yazeel, who is a goldsmith. He's mentioned in verse 8. And you'll read about a guy by the name of Hananiah who was also mentioned in verse 8, and his job is he's a perfume maker. Now, these are not exactly the guys that you anticipate or, or really want to find on a construction site, right? I mean, they, hey, hey, Nehemiah, where'd you find your crew? Did you go to Home Depot and find these guys? Well, to tell you the truth, no, I found Hananiah working the cologne section at Sephora. And so I brought him out here to, to build this wall. And you know, it was these ordinary non-professionals who were responsible for pulling off the rebuild of the wall of Jerusalem. Now, it's not hard to draw a parallel for the church today, is it? For the church to thrive, the work cannot be left in the hands of a handful of people. That every single member needs to take a piece of the wall. The Apostle Paul drives home this point when he compares the church to a body in Romans chapter 12, beginning in verse 4. He says, For just as each of us has one body with many members, and these members do not all have the same function, so in Christ we, though many, form one body. And each member belongs to all the others. We have different gifts according to the grace given to each of us. If your gift is prophesying, then prophesy in accordance with your faith. If it's serving, then serve. If it's teaching, then teach. If it's encouraging, then give encouragement. If it's giving, then give generously. If it is to lead, do it diligently. If it is to show mercy, do it cheerfully. It doesn't matter if you've been a Christian for 52 days or 50 years. It doesn't matter if you have a degree, a Ph.D. from a school of divinity or a certificate from the school of hard knocks. We need every single person to play their role in the body. Now, you may be thinking to yourself, well, I, I would really like to be more involved. I'm just not sure what my gifts really are. And as soon as I figure that out, then, then I'll get far more involved. And listen, I'm all for gift-oriented ministry, but who was it that rebuilt the wall of Jerusalem? It was a priest, a merchant, and a perfume maker, and just ordinary people. The wall was rebuilt because these ordinary people decided to get involved regardless of their background or their experience. And so let me encourage you to stop asking what's my gift and start asking what needs to be done. And when you see what needs to be done, go do it. And if you're not sure what needs to be done, then ask because there are all kinds of things that need to be done in this place and through this place. We, we need people to 
lead home groups and open up their home for home groups. We need people to be a part of our welcome team on Sunday mornings. We need people to teach our children in our children's ministry. We need people to help us reach out and serve this community. If we're going to accomplish the mission that we believe God's laid upon our hearts to make disciples who make disciples of all nations, we need every single person to find what needs to be done and start to do it. And I want to mention one thing that's coming up because I think this can help all of us as we think about fulfilling that mission. We have a, a couple coming in by the name of James and Minda Lippi who will be here with us on March 12th. And they're going to do some training with us, and this specifically applies to Friends Speak, but more than that, you may be here thinking, well, I don't, I don't think Friends Speak is the ministry that I can commit to right now, and that's okay, because what they're really going to teach us is to, how our, to share our faith in our lives, specifically for people who have come to this country from other places. Now, you may hear what they have to share and decide to get invo- involved in Friends Speak, which I hope many of you will, because that is a huge opportunity for us as we think about making disciples who make disciples of all nations, and the nations are coming to us. It's a huge opportunity. But others of you, you just work with people, and you live in neighborhoods with people, and you're part of teams with people who come from other countries, and they need friends, and they need relationships, and this is an opportunity for you to be equipped how to do that better. And so make a point to be with us on March 12th, right after Bible class. There'll be a, a, a lunch if you want to participate for 30 minutes, and then right into the training from 12 to 2. It's going to be a great opportunity. Now, here's one of the really cool things about what I'm talking about is so often when a person decides here, this is something that needs to be done, so I'm just going to do it even though I don't feel equipped to do it, is they end up discovering, you know what, I've been gifted to do this. And maybe it wasn't that they were gifted before, but maybe God, just through the power of the Holy Spirit, gifts them in this moment. I've seen this happen time and time again. I've seen people who didn't know they had the gift of teaching discover they had the gift of teaching when they said, okay, I'll do a one-on-one Bible study. I've seen people who didn't know they had the gift of hospitality discover they have the gift of hospitality when they said, you know what? Okay, if you need somebody to host a small group, a home group, I'll do it. And they discovered they have these gifts. You see, asking the question what needs to be done is a great way to figure out where to get involved. I want to give you a second question to ask, though. And that question is simply this. What do I care about? What do I care about? Throughout this account, we see that people made repairs just a short distance from their home, within eyesight of their home. One example, Nehemiah chapter 3 and verse 28. Above the horse gate... The priests made repairs, each in front of his own house. Do you think they needed extra motivation to do that work? Do you you think they were tempted at all to do shoddy work in that particular moment? No, because the, the area that they were working on was protecting what they cared about most, their home and their family. And so I imagine they gave everything they possibly could to build that just right because that's what they valued, that's what they cared about. My question to you this morning is, what do you care about? What do you care about? Do you care about kids? Ryan's do, obviously. Do you care about marriages? Do you care about people that don't know Jesus? Do you care about people who have been hurt by the church? Do you care about families that attend CCS? Do you care about people with addictions? Do you care about the homeless? Whatever it is that your heart cares about, 
Get involved in the ministry that will bless those people. Now, if you're thinking to yourself, well, there's something I care about. We don't have a ministry for that yet. Maybe, just maybe, God is saying to you, it's time for you to start a new section of the wall. That this, this could be it. This could be our opportunity to do something new for this particular group of people. Now, a high percentage of people got involved in repairing the wall, but not everybody did. And Nehemiah points this out in verse 5 of chapter 3. He says, the next section was repaired by the men of Tekoa, but their nobles would not put their soldiers' shoulders to the work under their supervisors. Nehemiah uses a phrase that brings to mind a stubborn ox that refuses to be yoked, and he does so to make this point that these guys had a pride issue, that these nobles didn't get involved in rebuilding the wall because they thought this particular work was beneath them. And it is a powerful reminder to us that each and every one of us must have the humility to do the work that needs to be done. For none of us to think that we're too important to do any type of work that needs to be done for the glory of God. And it thrills my soul when I see a CEO pushing a broom or picking up chairs after one of our fellowship events. It thrills me when I see somebody with a PhD sitting in a children's class, listening to somebody else teach, and just loving on kids. That's humility. And when we embrace that spirit, amazing things can be accomplished for the glory of God through this place. Now, the next thing we see in this text is that Nehemiah's vision for Jerusalem became a reality because many, many people made extraordinary sacrifices. The nobles from Tekoa, they didn't get involved in rebuilding the wall, but there were other men from Tekoa who did. And these individuals came from 11 miles away to be a part of a work that had zero benefit to them. And they, they were not the only ones you'll find that there are other people mentioned in this text that lived outside of the city of Jerusalem. And so why did these individuals put their lives at risk to help other people when there was zero benefit to themselves? They did so because they wanted to bless other people. They wanted to bless their fellow Jewish brothers and sisters, but more than that, they wanted to bless the God who had been so good to them. Folks, it is so easy to bring a consumeristic mindset into the church today, a, church that's con a mindset that's constantly asking the question, hey, what's in it for me? If I go attend this, if I go participate in this, will I get anything out of it? And I have to fight this mindset as much as the next person. Too often I walk out of here on a Sunday morning and think to myself, well, I didn't get much out of that. Jeff didn't sing any of my favorite songs. The announcements wait way too long. The preacher preached out of the most boring text in the entire Bible. I don't know why they even keep that guy around. And we have these feelings. And I need a, I need a text like this, an example like this, where people make extraordinary sacrifices to remind me that the work of God is not about what I get, it's about what I give. It's how I invest myself in his work for his glory. And that's where the blessing comes. And that's where his work is accomplished. 
And that's when things that go beyond our imagination actually begin to take place. And walls get built in 52 days. Now, whether an outsider or an insider, these people clearly had to make some sacrifices or changes to their schedules. There's no doubt that some of these people had to take a leave of absence from their work, and other people had to skip sporting events on the weekends. You say, well, how can you be so sure about that? I'm sure of that, not that it's mentioned in the text, but you don't build a wall in 52 days if you say, you know what, I got an hour on Sunday I can give you. It just doesn't happen. And so you're thinking to yourself, well, what are you saying, Smith? Are you saying I should quit my job so that I could volunteer at the church? No, it's not what I'm saying at all. But what I am saying is this text forces us to rethink our priorities, doesn't it? How, how are we making decisions? Is it the mission of God for the glory of God that really takes priority, or is it, does he just kind of get what's left over? Now, so many of us, this is the way we figure out our daily schedule, our weekly schedule, right? We put everything in first, all the, all the work and all the meetings and all the kids' school activities and all the kids' sporting activities or whatever they're involved in and my hobbies and the things I like to do in my free time, and we map all that in, and then we get to the end and go, okay, now there's a couple hours left over here and here, so I could go to that church fellowship or I could go to that service and... It's kind of where we start. And I want to challenge us in the spirit of these people to rearrange that, to decide that there are some non-negotiables in our lives, and that is the mission of God. And so that's what will come first in our schedule. And then we'll schedule around that. Now, I get it. I've been exactly where so many of you are. You've got kids that are playing sports, and you've been told they won't make the varsity team if they don't continue to play travel ball all the way through, and so you wrestle with this struggle, and I've been right where you are. I don't know what the answer is, but here's what I'd suggest you do, and I'm not, I'm not trying to guilt you. What I'm saying, I'm not saying you're doing wrong if you're not here and you're there. What I want to ask of, this, of you is this, though, is that you still keep the mission of God first and foremost. So when you're traveling to those places, you're having conversations about who on this team can we pray for? Who can we try to get in a conversation with? Who can we serve? Who can we show the love of Jesus? Who can we have a faith conversation with? Because you are there on mission with God. And you get to do something else as an extra fun thing as well. And so make that the priority. Now, one of the things that we also see is this. So when these people finish this section of the wall, they need to stop there. Nehemiah chapter 3 and verse 11. Malchijah, son of Haram, and Heshub, son of Pehath, Moab, repaired another section and the tower of the ovens. When these guys finished their section of the wall, they didn't just say, hey, did my part, I'm out. They actually said, what needs to be done next? Oh, you've got another section of the wall? Hey, I'm your guy. Oh, hey, there's a tower that needs to be repaired? Hey, I'm on it. I got it. I love that spirit. It's what the church needs today. It's people who come and, and serve and do their part, but they ask this question, what needs to be done next? What can I do next? What's still left undone? And they get after it. And perhaps the person that exemplified this sacrificial spirit more than anyone else was this guy by the name of Barak. 
Nehemiah says this about him in verse 20. He says, Next to him, Baruch, son of Zabbai, zealously repaired another section from the angle to the entrance of the house of Elishib, the high priest. Eliashib, the high priest. The word translated zealously in the original language, it means to burn or glow. And so Nehemiah is making this point. This guy burned a lot of energy. That's what it's going to require for us to complete or accomplish the mission of God. We are going to have to burn a serious amount of energy. It's going to take a lot. And so many of you do. I was thinking about that this week as I'm just kind of working through this. I'm thinking about so many of you seeing your faces, thinking about your names, thinking about what you do on a regular basis. And part of me started to say, well, I'm just going to name all these people. And then I thought, no, 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 that could be dangerous. I'm not going to do it for a couple of reasons. One reason is because some of you would make you incredibly uncomfortable. Some of you would love it, but that's another story. But <laughs> it'd make you incredibly uncomfortable. And then I'd also run the risk of missing somebody. And so I don't want to do that. I don't want to hurt anybody's feelings. But this is what I want you to know. I appreciate you so much. You encourage me and you inspire me. You're doing really, really good, important work. There are going to be days when you're discouraged. And days when you want to throw in the towel. And we'll talk more about this next week. But for today, I just want to encourage you to hold on to the promise of God from Hebrews chapter 6 and verse 10. This is a promise. God is not unjust. He will not forget your work and the love you have shown him as you have helped his people and continue to help them. God won't forget. So as we wrap this up, to those of you who maybe haven't been as involved, or maybe it's been a long time, maybe you've never gotten involved. I just want to say we need you. We need you. You have so much to offer this place. You may not see in yourself. We know you do because of the God who's at work within you. And so we need you. I want to encourage you to find your place. And we want to help you in any way that we possibly can. Now, I recognize that Satan's going to do everything he possibly can to keep you on the sidelines. He's going to tell you you're not the right person. He's going to tell you you don't have the time. He's going to tell you that you wouldn't get much out of it. Please ignore him. Let's do this together. Let's make disciples who make disciples of all nations for the name and for the fame of our great God. Thank you.